Let's open our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 29. We're going to do chapter 29 a little bit differently in that I'm going to highlight verse 1, 6, 16, 22, and 23, but I do want to read the entire chapter, but then come back and really deal with what seems to be the reoccurring theme in Proverbs chapter 29. So let's dive in and we'll come back and take a deeper look and do some cross-references As it says in verse 1, He who is often reproved and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. This seems to be a recurring theme throughout the book, but let's read the chapter. Now when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people will groan. And whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth. Now the king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it, and a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. One of our verses that will tie this together, verse 6, By transgression and evil a man is snared, but the righteous will sing and rejoice. The righteous considers the cause of the poor, But the wicked does not understand such knowledge. Scoffers ensnare a city, but wise men turn away wrath. If a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there's no peace. And the bloodthirsty hates the blameless, but the just seek his well-being. A fool vents all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. If a ruler pays attention to lies, then all of his servants become wicked. And the poor man and the oppressor have this in common, and the Lord gives light to the eyes of both. The judge, the king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. And the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When the wicked are multiplied, transgressions increase, but the righteous will see their fall. Correct your son, and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. Where there is no revelation, some have vision there, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. A servant will not be corrected by mere words, for though he understands, he will not respond. Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And he who pampers his servant from childhood will have him as a son in the end. 22 and 23 will be verses we come back to. An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. And a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Whoever is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He swears to tell the truth, but reveals nothing. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for men comes from the Lord. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. Now, we've just read through the chapter. I want to go back and look at the first verse again. He who is often reproven hardens his neck, 
will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Now, tying that in with verse 6, it says that an evil man will be caught in a snare. And then in verse 16, when the wicked are multiplied, uh, transgressions increase, but the righteous will see the fall. And I want you to get the falling part here being literally seen. Verse 22, an angry man stirs up strife, and um, a furious man abounds in transgression. A man's pride will bring him down, or bring him low. And um, my cross-reference, if you have uh, the same Bible I do, my cross-reference for verse 1 is 2 Chronicles 16, and let's go to Second Chronicles 16. We've got three cross-references that I'm going to deal with this verse. The idea of the wicked um, not receiving instruction, uh, being proud, will be suddenly destroyed. And when it happens, it happens quick. And uh, we have an example of it. It's really the last chapter of Chronicles, Second Chronicles 36. Let me just tell you that the man we're going to talk about here is Zedekiah. Um, He was only 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 36. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself before his God, before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Now, we just finished up, we're finishing up Jeremiah on men's prayer on Saturdays. And um, over and over and over again, I look at my notes and I go over and over and over again, I realize that it's um, Ed Christman's 60th birthday. It's right in there between verses 11 and 11 and a half and 12. And um, it's going to be not tonight, but it's going to be Friday. It doesn't say it here, but it's implied in the text. And in the original Greek, that's what that means. And, and if, you can, if you read really between the lines, it says there will be cake and ice cream served after the study tonight. So, I just, I don't know if you saw that there or not. But it's, it's the truth. I'm not lying. So, cake and ice cream. Hey, happy birthday, Ed. Huh? <laughs> It's not, it's, it's not your birthday today. I know, it's my wife's birthday today. <laughs> and that's, that's between 11 and a half and, and three quarters between 11 and 12. So I know that's true. All right. I was supposed to make that announcement at the beginning, but I was too excited to get into the study. And looked out at my notes, Ed's birthday, 60 years old. And I can't tell you how old Judy is. You'll have to get that out of her herself. <laughs> All right, background here. Hardening your heart and not listening. And what happens? Proverbs 29 says, when the fall comes, it'll come quick. Here, king after king hardened their hearts to what was inevitable. Jeremiah said, don't fight it. You're going down. You're going to Babylon for the next 70 years, and nothing's going to change it. So don't be stiff-necked. Don't be rebellious. Don't be hard-hearted, because you will fall. His son, Jeconiah, uh, was taken by 
King Nebuchadnezzar, and he took him to Babylon, and that's when um, Zedekiah came to the throne, but he didn't learn his lesson. He continually rebelled, and as a result, the rest of this chapter is the destruction uh, because he would not listen to Jeremiah. In other words, he wouldn't listen to the word of God. In his rebellion, it says he was stiff-necked. That's the same as being rebellious. And hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. And as a result, um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came down. He took all, in verse 18, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his leaders, and these he took to Babylon. And we find um, in verse 21 that this fulfilled the 70 years for not keeping the Sabbath, all because of a man who wouldn't listen, and when judgment came, it was quick. But I have a better example that I think fits it, and that's back in Numbers chapter 16. Uh, Talk about um, a man who stirs up in the Proverbs, it talks about in 29, stirring up, a man who stirs up strife, um, he will be brought low, and he 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 will actually have a fall, it says down in verse 16. Such was the case with the children of Israel. Now this is a lengthy chapter, so I'm gonna do an overview of uh, a man named uh, Korah in verse one, and um, Dathan and Abram. These three men, um, they rose up against Moses. And basically they're saying, Moses, who in the world do you think you are? And they stirred up 250 there probably was a couple, uh, possibly as many as two million people that left Egypt, and they weren't out too far. And Sesebita Mills actually made Dathan, there's three of them, but he makes Dathan in, his, in the movie The Ten Commandments, the one who's the, the rebel and um, who stirs up the people and wants to take him back to Egypt. But basically, he stirs the pot. And he says, Moses, who in the world do you think you are? Uh, That um, you exalt yourself, in verse 3, why do you exalt yourself above all the congregation of the Lord? And it says that um, they stir up 250 of the chief men in Israel. And so Korah gets them to go along with his scheme. What does... uh, um, an unrighteous man do? Well, he, he stirs up strife. He causes trouble. But he's going to have a fall. So, um, in verse 13, we're told, is it a small thing to you that you have brought us out of a land, up to a land flowing with milk and honey, to kill us here in the wilderness? What should um, keep you acting like a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey. You haven't given us an inheritance or vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We're not going to come up. Moses calls for them. They say, forget about it. So what happens in verse 15 um, is basically a showdown. Moses is angry in verse 15. says he's very angry. And he says, Lord, don't listen to their prayers. 
He says, tomorrow you guys come with your worship incense and you stand before your tents and we'll, we'll call upon the name of the Lord. And as, as a result, the Lord Moses falls on his face and begins to, to pray. And he says in verse 22, O God, O God, the spirit of all flesh shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation. The Lord heard Moses' prayer. He says, I'm going to take them all out. I'm, I've called you to, to lead my people into the promised land, period. And they're trying to talk the people into going back. They're stirring up str- strife. But Moses intercedes and he says, basically, Lord, it's just really Korah and Dathan. They're the troublemakers. He says, why destroy all of them? And so we read that the Lord said to Moses, tell the people in verse 27 to stay away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. And so the scene is set. And basically, um, Moses tells the people, everybody's with those guys, stay there. Everybody who's not, you better get away from their tents. And to prove that the Lord had chosen Moses, he says in verse 28, by this you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these guys die naturally like all men, or if they're visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up and all that belong to them, they go down into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Proverbs 29 says that an evil man will fall suddenly if he's rebellious against the Lord. Verse 31, it came to pass as soon as Moses got done speaking these words that the ground split apart under them, the earth opened up, and swallowed them and their household, and all the men with Korah, and all their goods. And so all they had went down into the pit. The earth closed over them. They perished from the congregation. And then everybody takes off and runs. But the Lord's not done, because there's these 250 other guys that in their heart was also rebellion. So we read in verse 35, I want you to start counting up the number of people that are going to be affected. A person who stirs up strife can cause many to fall. So a fire came down from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. These were the guys that Korah talked into the rebellion. And they were ringleaders. And evidently they had some influence because people were listening. Now, on the very next day, go down to verse 41. The very next day after all this happens, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when it happened, when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron again, they turned towards the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among the congregation, that I might consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a censer and put fire in it from the altar, put incense on it, and take it quickly into the congregation and make atonement for them, 
for wrath has begun from the Lord. The judgment has already started. And there's a plague that it's in the camp of Israel, all because of one guy, Korah. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded. He ran to the midst of the congregation, and already the plague had begun among the people, so he put the incense and made atonement for the people. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 people. Why? Let's go back to, before we go to the New Testament, let's go back and just read the first verse of uh, Proverbs 29. He who is often reproved, Dathan and, and Korah were rebels. Um, secretly what they wanted was to be in charge. And um, as a result, the scripture said, they will suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. In the New Testament, there's one book that's one chapter long. It's called the book of Jude. And so I'd like you to turn to that because Korah is made mention of. The book of Jude is primarily about past judgment of false teachers. And um, one of them is this rebellion that took place in the wilderness, verse 5. I want to remind you that Though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. So the whole chapter is basically the characteristics. He gives examples of of, uh, what God did in the past. The angels did not keep their proper estate. One-third of all the angels that God created rebelled. And what happened? Satan fell. Jesus told his disciples, I saw the devil fall from heaven like lightning. Why? Because he rebelled. Because he was rebellious. He stirred up strife. And what happened? One third of all the angelic beings all suffered the consequences of the rebellion. They're called demons today. And so that's mentioned in verse 6. The angels that didn't keep their proper domain, he's reserved in judgment. But beginning in verse 8, How can you tell the characteristics of this sort of person? And so from 8 through 16, um, we find uh, it says they are dreamers, they defile flesh, they reject authority. Korah was in direct rebellion to Moses and Aaron. And they speak evil of dignitaries. That's what Korah was doing. But yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when they disputed about the body of Moses, boy, would I like to have been around to hear that conversation, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, they're like brute beasts. And these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. And then we have three men mentioned now. They have gone in the way of Cain, who ran um, and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and they perished, notice, in the rebellion of Korah. What are the characteristics of a false teacher? Um, they reject authority, and um, 
uh, they're an open rebellion against what God has established as authority. So here he's mentioned. Here he's called out. Dathan isn't mentioned. Neither is the other guy. But the consequences of uh, what we want to learn from Proverbs 29 is that uh, the Bible does describe for us the nature, the characteristics of those people that um, are false, uh, false teachers. I was watching the news right before I walked out of the door. Uh, some church down in, I'm not sure what, what state it was, but um, they said before they lined up to go, to, to go into church, they light up and then they go in and then they shut the doors. Well, what they did is um, some mother and father in their 60s was trying to get some sort of confession out of one of their 19-year-old boys. Anybody else see this report besides me? Yeah, a couple of you did. And um, a kid almost dies, ends up in a hospital with severe wounds, and all to solicit some sort of um, um, confession of sin, and they were, they were going to beat it out of him, and the whole congregation was, in, was involved with it. And so they're interviewing the neighbors, and they said, we always knew it was weird. We didn't know it might have been a cult, but now, now we know it. Now, it was. And um, so we have um, organizations just like that. Then it talks about their, their future judgment. Um, it says in verse 14, even Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Gang, that's you. When the Lord comes, he's going to come, 1 Thessalonians 4, with those who died in Jesus. He comes with tens of thousands of his saints. Why? To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, uh, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Who are they? Well, they're murmurers. Korah was a murmurer. He was a, a complainer. You brought us out here to die in the wilderness. We don't see any land flowing with milk and honey. Walking according to their own lust. Nobody was going to tell Korah what to do. So the Lord had to take care of him in his own special way. And um, according to their own lust, and their mouth speak great swelling words. That's what Korah was all about. He went around stirring up strife, and what was the result was the fall of many thousands of people. Flattering people to gain advantage. All right, enough with uh, verse in chapter 29. Let's go back to the book. What we want to take home with us tonight is as we're reading through the book of wisdom, uh, we have reoccurring themes. Chapter 29 has to do with um, the contrasting thought of what happens to an evil man, he's caught in a snare, but it's contrasted in verse 6, but the righteous will sing and rejoice. Well, that's what we were doing right before the study tonight. We're out here worshiping the Lord and just enjoying it. Sort of gets our heart ready to let go of the busyness of the day so we can actually be still for a little bit and glean from God's word. And um, the warning here is, um, if a person has this mindset of a Korah, who stirs up strife, um, a man's pride will bring him low. Even this man, Nebuchadnezzar, 
who the Lord used to destroy Jerusalem. If you read Daniel chapter four, the whole chapter is his personal testimony because he rebels against the Lord and makes a statue of himself of solid gold and demands that everybody worships it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no way, Jose, ain't gonna happen. He says, well, then you're gonna get tossed in the fiery furnace, heated up seven times. And um, the guys that threw him in the fire, they all died. They, were, they threw him in, they were all tied up like this. But Nebuchadnezzar looks in and goes, what's going on? We threw three guys in there, and uh, they're walking around freely. Oh, I see another one, and it looks just like the Son of Man. Who was it? It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, they came out of the fire, and the only thing that was burned off was what was binding them. And that's what trials do. Trials are important. It's important to go through fiery trials because fiery trials will burn away the things. And uh, Peter calls it um, like gold being refined in a fire. That's what a fiery trial does. It burns the dross off so that you, you come out more pure as a result of going through a trial. Well, what happens after that is chapter four, the whole chapter is the most powerful dictator that has ever walked this planet named Nebuchadnezzar. And the very last thing he has to say after he's been humbled, he was proud and he fell. For seven years, it says that uh, his hair grew dreads, his nails grew out, and it says seven seasons, so it, it could be seven years or it could be seven changes of the seasons. We really don't know. The wording isn't clear enough. But it says at the end of that time, he came to his senses. And uh, the leadership brought him back into the palace. And the final words in Daniel chapter 4 are these. And those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And he writes his own personal testimony. That's the whole chapter. Read it a little bit later if you want to, chapter 4. So the point of Proverbs 29 is the danger of pride, how it can hurt other people, and um, be careful of, of those that go around liking, liking to, like, wanting to stir the pot like a Dathan or a Korah. All right, that brings us to chapter 30. Chapter 30 is written by a guy named Agur, A-G-U-R. We don't know anything about him. We don't know uh, who Ithiel is or Ukul. And... Um, but it's one of the richest, I think, of the Proverbs. And um, let's just read the first four verses here. He doesn't think too much of himself. Surely I am more stupid than any man. <laughs> At least he's not proud. And do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learn wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. And then he asks a question, and notice that it's in the form of a question. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Now catch this. What is his name and what is his son's name? Interesting verse if you want to defend the Trinity. Because here it is. What's his name? And what's his son's name? 
Who's ever ascended into heaven? Who's ever descended into hell? Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Picking it up in verse 12. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now the point that he's making is he's been there. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven, and that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Who is the one who made all things? And tell me, what is the name of his son? Who has ever ascended into heaven or descended into hell? Well, if you're taking notes, Ephesians chapter four, verse eight tells us, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth and he set the captives free. He was in there, as it says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, a great fish. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we could get into a lengthy study. He basically is fulfilling what they talked about in Hebrews, all the Old Testament saints that died before Jesus died on the cross. Godly men of faith, the prophets, David, and um, all these men that are mentioned in Hebrews 11, it says they all died in faith, but they didn't receive the promise. What was the promise? Heaven. That's what it's all about. That's your promise tonight. That's my promise tonight. I go to prepare a place for you. And it's good to be reminded of that. Why? So that where I am, then you can be there also. And so the main thing is to keep your eye on the main thing. Good time for an amen. What's the, what, 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 is, what is the main thing? The promise. These all died in the Old Testament not having received the promise. For they looked for a builder and maker whose house is eternal in the heavens. And they hadn't received it yet. So, first act of business after Jesus dies on the cross, he descends. Agar says, who can go to heaven? And who can go to hell? Tell me, his name. And then, by the way, tell me his son's name too. And John 3 says, I could tell you heavenly things, and you don't, earthly things, and you not believe in me. How, how are you going to believe in me if I tell you about heavenly things? Well, here we find out the father's name and the son's name is Yeshua, means salvation. And uh, he openly comes out and says, He is the one who was in heaven, but he came down from heaven. And uh, he is the son of man who is in heaven. So the answer to the question that Agar proposes, in the first, we can go back there now to the first uh, couple verses of uh, Proverbs chapter 30, is who is he? What is his name, if if you know? Well, back then they didn't know. Because the Messiah, coming through the line of David, uh, wasn't around yet. And um, so the question is proposed. Verses five and six. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. But then there's this warning. Don't mess with the word. Do not add to his word. Lest he reprove you and you be found a liar. Now this is a very strong admonishment. 
exhortation that you simply do not want to mess with the word of God. I'm gonna have you turn to the book of the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 22. And while you're turning, let me just tell you how bad it's getting with some of the translations. I have to go back to 1997 when Zondervan came out with the idea that they wanted to release a gender-neutral Bible, the New International Version. It's the largest-selling Bible in the English-speaking world. And um, there were people um, that were from... What's the name of the organization? Uh, It'll come to me in a second. Um, Colorado Springs headquarters. Anyway, there was a big stink put up about it. This was back in 97. And there was uh, opposition uh, focused on the family headquarters. That's what it is. And one of the writers, um, uh, and that organization particularly, took a stand And they actually stopped this Bible from being produced. And basically what the plan was to abandon all plans for gender-related changes in future editions of the NIV. It would be called the new NIV. And basically what they eventually did, the writer here says, I did not have to wait long to hear what they had done That next Monday, January 28th, this goes back to 2002, national TV and radio reports proclaimed that a gender-neutral NIV was being published. Testament to follow, in 2003, the marketing campaign included about 40,000 advanced copies of the New Testament that were being mailed to Christian gatekeepers. The new edition would be called Today's New International Version, and the IBS gave assurance that the, the current NIV would also remain in print as long as there was still a demand for it. Now, what is the controversy about, and why should we even care? Well, the heart of the controversy is basically th- this. The new NIV people have decided to translate the general idea of a passage and to erase any mention of male-oriented details. They do two things to erase the uh, male-oriented details. They eliminate them, changing man to mortals, father to parents, son to child, brother to fellow believer, he to they, so that all male meaning is gone. Or else they add female-oriented details that are not found in the original text, such as changing brother to brother or sister, so that the male emphasis in the Bible example is gone. Let me just give you one example of this. And why am I reading it? Because we read in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6, do not add to or change God's word. And I'll just give you one verse that, that we pulled off the internet today and how it changes the whole meaning of Jesus. And NIV in Hebrews 2, verse 6, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And the new NIV, Hebrews 2, verse 6, it says, What are mere mortals that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? 
What's wrong with that? The new NIV removes the possibility of connecting this verse with Jesus, who called himself the Son of Man. It mistranslates the single Greek word hulios, son, and anthrios, man. It is no longer refers to the human race as a unity named man, and then parentheses, the name given by God in Genesis 5.2, but mere mortals. This adds the idea that the mortality that is not in the Greek text. Note that man, as created by God, was not mortal, and this passage has creation language in it. But the new NIV's goal has been achieved. The male-oriented details are erased. So you can go out and buy a Bible that's out there today, and what they have done um, in adding to and taking away from the scriptures. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6 says, you don't change God's word. Good time for an amen here, too. But this is how the Bible ends. I mean, the very last thing that the Bible tells us to do. Everybody knows Genesis 1-1. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everybody knows it. But we should be just as familiar and be able to quote the last verses of the Bible. Pick it up in verse 17. And this should be our heart tonight. The spirit and the bride say, come. Lord, I see what's going on in the world. Please come quick. Amen on that one? So please come. I'm the, I'm the bride and the Holy Spirit. We're in, we're, in, we're in union with this one. Lord, come quick. And let him that says come, and let him that is a thirsty come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. So much for Calvinism. Whosoever will. You're whosoever. You have a free choice. You have a free will to exercise it any way you want to. Whosoever will implies everybody. It implies that you have a free will and that God did not predestine you to heaven or predestine you to hell. He knows all things. And so according to his foreknowledge, he predestined you. Now, verse 18, the last four verses of the word of God. For I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in the book. If any man takes away from the words of the books of this prophecy, God will take away his part of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written in the book. Let me just stop here. What do you think? The Lord Jesus Christ thinks about the new NIV. Yeah, not a whole lot because it completely takes away any strong reference. Um, And it's so ironic because we're going to be in Proverbs 31 tonight, which is all about a virtuous woman. How are you going to dance around that one? Anyway, here's, here's how the Bible ends. He which testifies these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Even so, come Lord Jesus, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen? I mean, we could go home right now, and that'd be great. Great way to end the study. But we're not quite through uh, the Proverbs. So let's go back to Proverbs 30. And um, every word of God is pure. Jesus said you can't change a jot or a tittle. That would be like us saying, crossing the T or dotting an I. You can't take that out of the original writing without throwing off the perfect order of the scriptures. You can't do that until every part of it will be fulfilled. That's how perfect this this book actually is. 
All right, seven through nine. Two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with food you prescribe for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. David said the same thing. Lord, don't make me so rich that I would forget you, but don't make me so poor that I would actually have to steal. Now, having said that, I would like you to turn in the New Testament to the book of Philippians and give a New Testament example of this. Philippians chapter 4. This is Paul in verse 10. He comments on this. And here, here it is, really question of balance. Having too much, not having enough. Paul addresses this to the Philippians in verse 10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be poor, I know how to be abased, and I know how to bound. I know when things are going really, really well. Uh, Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I had departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and I abound. I am full, having received from Ephroditus the things which were sent, From you there was a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by grace in Jesus. So it doesn't matter if um, I have a lot. It doesn't matter if I have next to nothing. But he learned that whatever situation he was going to be in, he was going to be a happy camper. But let me use... Let me use the same guy as an example that ties into chapter 29, a guy who was stiff-necked and who wanted to stir up some trouble. And he took a fall. Remember his name before it was Paul? It was Saul. And what he did is he began to stir up trouble. And he was going after Christians. And uh, he got documentation and paperwork And he was off to Damascus to throw some Christians in jail. And there, he got knocked off his horse. He was blinded. He heard a voice. And the voice, he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard to kick against the pricks. What a great line. That's what the Lord does to those that are stiff-necked. What does he do? Knocks them off their high horse. Said, Paul, it's hard to fight against me. Ask anybody that has been chased by the Lord. I remember getting chased by the Lord. 
Call him the hound of heaven. It's hard when, you're, when the Lord's hot on your trail and you're kicking against the pricks. It's hard to do. So what does he do? Takes away his sight for three days. Let's him think about it. And the Lord does that from time to time. Just like he did with Nebuchadnezzar. Took him out in the wilderness for seven years until he came to his senses. After three days, the Lord appears in the sky named um, Ananias, and he says, I want you to go pray for this guy named Saul. And he said, forget about it. This, this guy's throwing everybody in jail. I don't want to pray for him. He says, no, go do it, because I want to show him all the things that he's going to have to suffer for my namesake. What a great promise to have as a baby Christian. <laughs> the Lord comes to you and tells you, I'm going to show you how many things you're going to suffer for being a Christian. So that's why he's able to say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm rich, I'm content. It doesn't matter if I'm poor, I'm content. Why? Because God called me. God called you. So does it matter if you have or you have not? No. What matters is he saved you, number one. Number two, he's given you a grateful heart for being saved, and he wants to use you as his instrument. And you can kick all you want to, but know that it's hard to kick a cactus. Trust me, I've run into them. <laughs> and they're, they're hard once you, you bump into them. All right, I'm getting a little off track here. But the point, going back to um, uh, chapter 30, is um, verses 7 through 9. And um, if I'm full, don't make me too rich, Lord, that I forget you are so poor that I would actually steal and profane your name. All right, verses 11 through 14. It says, there's a generation that curses its father, does not bless its mother. There's a generation that is pure in its own eyes. It is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords, and whose fangs are like knives. To devour the poor from the earth, and the needy from among men. So verses 11 through 14 um, speak of a generation that is haughty, that um, has no concern at all for the poor. And he could be a plague. I suppose this could apply to any generation. But let's make it our generation. And by doing so, I want you to turn to Second Timothy in the New Testament, Second Timothy, this Bible study is like this, that you're going to want to get those bookmarkers because it's going to help you get there quick, quickly. If you don't have bookmarkers, it's on page 1,235. You'll get there real easy that way. Here, the wisdom that, that we're to look out for, according to Agur, is a certain generation that is just going to be evil and haughty. And it's interesting that when Paul was writing to his protege, Timothy, he talks about the last days. I believe the last days began when Israel became a nation on May 14th, 1948. I believe the parable of the fig tree in Matthew 24 is Jesus saying the people that are alive in that generation will see the fulfillment of all things. And then he gives us signs that we're to look for. 
What, what, what will it be like? What will the people be like? Well, Paul now writes to Timothy and he tells us exactly what it's gonna be like. 2 Timothy 3, verse one. Know this, Timothy. In the last days, perilous times will come. Well, I'm watching the Middle East explode right now, just as you are, and it's all focused around what? Israel. For men will be lovers of themselves, they'll be lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, they'll be headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll have a form of godliness but deny its power from such people turn away. Agar, writing in Proverbs 30, says that an evil generation will curse his father. That's exactly what 2 Timothy tells us. Uh, Their eyes will be lofty. In other words, they'll be proud. And um, the reoccurring phrase is, there is a generation. Well, I believe there really is a specific generation that set us apart. And I happen to believe that we are that generation that has watched the rebirth. It's been 70 years now that um, almost that Israel has been back in the land. All right, we need to keep going. Let's read on till we get to verse 23 here. The leech has two daughters crying, give, give. There are three things that are never satisfied. Four things never say it's enough. The grave, there's people always dying. The barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water. And the fire that never says it's enough. If you get a fire going, you can keep feeding it and feeding it and feeding it and it'll just keep burning as long as it has the fuel. The eyes that mock his father and scorns obedience to his mother. The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. There are three things that are too wonderful for me. Now, he's using this play on, on, on numbers and he has four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air. Uh, saw an eagle this morning. Bald-headed eagle, just soaring, just the way about them, the grandeur, the way they soar, their strength, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and then the way of a man with a woman or a virgin. And uh, they're just, for those who love the ocean, understand the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, just being out. My dad was in... uh, in the Navy in, in World War II. And there's just something about the awesomeness of being out in the middle of the Pacific. And you, you realize just how small you really are underneath all those stars. And it's just an awesome thing. And then the way of a man and a virgin, the interaction that takes place, the different stages that, that, that people, I think, go through. Uh, when they meet. I think there's the infatuation stage where you're on best behavior. You don't want any of your shortcomings or faults to be seen. I call it the infatuation stage. And then there's sort of of uh, the realization stage that 
the person that you're sitting next to actually has faults. <laughs> and so the final stage is the acceptance. So there's this things that you go through from infatuation to understanding that you married a sinner, but you love that person anyway. And then, then there's this acceptance that comes with it. There's a way between a man and a virgin. And there's this process that every, everyone goes through. All right, verse 20. There is a way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wickedness. There are four things the earth is uh, perturbed. Yes, or three, and four that cannot bear it up. For a servant, when he reigns, a fool when he is filled with food, a hateful woman when she is married, and a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. Now, I could give you examples of every one of these, but we only have so much time, right? So let's just take verse 23, which says, a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. So a servant who now supersedes um, her master. And for this one, I want you to turn back to the story of Hagar and Sarah in Genesis chapter 16. Let's go back to Genesis. This is a great study just within itself. Abraham and Sarah are coming out of Egypt and uh, they brought with her, verse 1, an Egyptian. And notice she's a maidservant whose name was Hagar. And so Sarah said to Abraham, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai. And then Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Cana, so he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And so when she saw that she had conceived, word for word, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Underneath that last period is Proverbs, verse 21 and 23. So here is um, a picture of uh, Proverbs 30. Let's go back to Proverbs. And verse 23, a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. Three things in the earth that perturbed, yes, four that cannot bear up. It got to the point where um, Sarah says, Ishmael's got to go. And so does a maidservant. And there's a whole study in that. But that's the uh, disruption that that causes. And here's the book of Proverbs spelling it out. All right, let's finish up the chapter. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they're exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. Actually, they can bear quite a bit of weight. We talked about ants earlier. Then there's the rock badgers. Some of your Bibles will say coonies right here. They're feeble folk. They make their homes in the crags. Now, in just a couple weeks, we're going to be down by the Dead Sea, and we're going to go to a place called En Gedi, where David ran from Saul. And without exceptions, we always see coonies. Now, the reason they dwell in the 
the crags of the rocks is because they're helpless with their paws. They don't dig holes. And they have no self-defense mechanisms at all. But I've never been there, and I've been there many, many times, without seeing the wild goats of Engedi and the coonies. Coonies look like sort of a, a big ground squirrel, crossed between a ground hog or, or a big rat or something like that. But actually, they're kind of cute and they're kind of cuddly. But anyway, uh, the rock badgers are feeble folks. When this was written 3,000 years ago, I mean, we can go to that same spot. We know it's in Getty because of this, the water that's there. And they're still there 3,000 years later. And then it says, The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps it with the hands in its king's palace. It says here, the locusts have no king. Turn to the book of Revelation 9. Revelation 9, to me, is one of the most bizarre chapters in the Bible. It takes place during the tribulation period, and I turn to it because we read that the locusts have no king. The plague that bring in locusts are purely driven by the wind. That's how they get around. The wind comes and carries them in and carries them out. And uh, they have no order about them. And the proverb says they have no king. But here, and I will have to wrap things up with this tonight, but it's sort of what we're headed for. And I do want to keep you on the cutting edge. I do want you looking forward to the blessed hope. I do want you to understand what it means that we are to pray to escape the things that are coming upon this earth. And when it says pray that you're worthy to escape, you might say escape what? And so I'll close the study tonight, hopefully giving you a greater appreciation of what the rapture is, why there has to be a rapture, and what the Lord is actually sparing us from. All right, chapter nine, the fifth angel sounded. So we're in the middle of the trumpet junctions. And I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, notice, locust came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth. That's what locusts eat. Nor any green thing, nor any tree but only the men who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. Revelation 7 says that there's 12,000 from the 12 different tribes of Israel, equaling 144,000 who are supernaturally sealed. When these demons are released, they can do harm to any man they want to, except those that are sealed by the Lord. And they were not given authority to kill, but to torment them for five months. And the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. I've never been bit by a scorpion, but I hear it's painful. In those days, men will seek death and they won't be able to find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. That's crazy. This is crazy stuff I've ever read. Here's people that want to take themselves out because of the pain and they can't do it. The spirit refuses to leave the body when you should be dead. Now, the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads were crowns 
of something like gold, and her faces were like the faces of women. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariot with many horses running into battle. And they had in their tails scorpions, stings in their tail, and their power was to hurt men for five months. Pray that you're accounted worthy to escape the things that are coming on this earth. That's what's coming on this earth. And then it says this. They had a king over them. What did we just read in Proverbs? The locusts have no king. So obviously these are not ordinary locusts. What are they? Well, let me just before I finish reading, I'm going to turn back to Jude. I'm going to read verse 6. The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. In other words, they're chained up. But now in Revelation 9, we have an angel come down and unlock the door. And what comes out? Well, these demons that have been reserved for judgment. And so here, they're let out, and they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in the Greek, it's Apollyon, none other than the devil himself. It's one of 30 titles given to Lucifer in the Bible. One woe is past. Behold, still more are coming after these things. I gotta at least finish 30. The locusts have no king, verse 27, yet they all advance in ranks, The spider skillfully spreads with his hands and in the king's palace. There are three things which are majestic in pace. Yes, four which are stately in walk. A lion which is mighty among beasts. That was making headlines tonight for this very popular uh, African lion that was poached uh, and does not turn away from any. A greyhound. Here we have a reference to a dog in the Bible. So if you ever wonder if dogs are ever mentioned in the Bible, the answer is yes. A male goat also and a king whose troops are with him. If you have been foolish at exalting yourself, or if you have devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. For as the churning of milk produces butter and the whirling of the nose produces blood, so the focusing of wrath produces strife. Proverbs 29 and 30 And let me just leave you with McGee quote. The lesson is plain to see. The believer who walks in the high places, as did Habakkuk, will be able to rejoice in the day of trouble, where it says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, and neither shall fruit be in the vines, and the labor of the oil shall fail, the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, I have nothing. And the locust has pretty much taken it all. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon high places. That comes from the book of Habakkuk. And it's referring to a mountain goat that dwells in the high places on the high hills. Let's stand up and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for what we were able to get through tonight. 
And as your word says, we can make our plans, but you can have your own ways of taking us through your time frame. So thank you that uh, you've given us this study tonight and all of God's people said, amen and amen.